To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week, it's all murder all the time. First, it seemed an open and shut case of a man who shot his wife and children on the side of the road. But is there more to the story? We'll talk about the iHeart podcast, Murder in Illinois. Plus, a fatal stabbing in a Spanish resort town sent a family friend to prison. So why was a later killing connected to the first? We'll review the Netflix documentary, Murder by the Coast. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, co-author, and love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Buenas tardes, amiga. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and our resident cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, meow. My cat ears came today. Hooray. Thank God. Your cat. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. Yeah, and finally, our captain of Woke Cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast with iHeart and our Patreon deep dive book club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. Talar, one of our most favorite listeners, Erin Fox, a.k.a. Foxy. Yeah. uh, Lost a cat. I mean, she's got like several dogs as we now see the videos all the time but like she tells me she reached out to you because of your pet detective business mm-hmm. are you now offering your services uh beyond your town to our podcast listeners Should our podcast listeners if they lose a pet be reaching out to you yes or no absolutely yeah foxy and i had a nice phone call today and we chatted about her cat and went through sort of some search techniques um i gave her some ideas for like the right posters to put up in the neighborhood and how to use her garage as a trap um also (laughs) how to use her other cat sweet pea as bait Mm. um to perhaps lure the missing cat in and so we're going to touch base again, but yeah, I do consults um, from afar. I teach people how to fish, basically, to find their cats. And Toby, are you going to help listeners find their UFOs in their neighborhood if they ask you? All they have to do is ask. I'm just sitting here waiting. <laughs> All right. They're now UAPs. I th- what are they? U- UAPs, UAPs, yeah. Unidentified right. aerial phenomenon. Yeah. Mm. I really want to learn how to use my garage as a trap because Kevin mm-hmm. and I have a killer owl living on our property. Wait a minute, not a killer. Oh, ki- I you saw don't have it. A killer owl. Oh no, but it's the it's a barred owl, uh-huh. not yeah. barn barred, right? Which is the same kind of owl that is uh, famously known to swoop and attack people, and is maybe the culprit in the Kathleen Peterson death. Of course, at the center of the staircase. Only three of us believe that, though. I hundred percent believe it. But uh, <laughs> Toby's <laughs> Toby's going no way. This owl is. Like last year, it was a thing that we saw occasionally, and now it's omnipresent. Like we see the owl wow. every day. You're on the deck, the owl's right there. I took the dogs out for a walk like today. He's sizing us up. You just look up, and the owl is right above you, and he just chills and just wow. looks at you. It's incredible. You there's guys are some, super lucky. There's some weird like connection between owls and UFOs, some people think. Really? Ooh. Yes. Ooh. 100%. You just interested. Not sure what it is, but I know it exists. Yeah, I think, didn't like the uh, Golden State Killer, didn't like he act like that too? Like hang out in neighborhoods and just like slowly watch people. <laughs> he did. Just, just hang out in out. trees. Yeah. And hang out on their roofs. Swoop down on squirrels. Oh my God. Well, all you know now is if I mysteriously die and Kevin is suspected, there's an alternative theory that we can all rely all right. on. Right, Kevin? I have no blow poke for the fireplace. <laughs> oh my God. Can we just like, I, we know we need to get on the podcast, but for a second, that moment in the staircase, this is why to me it is the Citizen Kane of true crime when they find the blow poke in the garage. Isn't that not like incredible? Yes or no? Yes? Yes. 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 We all agree yes. Okay. Is everyone ready to record a podcast? Yes. Leading off. There was this unnervingly odd, almost eerie look in his eyes. Eyes that belonged to a man the Will County State's attorney described as... The heartless, soulless psychopath. 
In 2007, a passing motorist stopped to help a man limping along the side of the road. Christopher Vaughn said he thought his wife had just shot him and police would find her body and those of their three children in the family minivan. The probable cause to arrest him cited the fact that he had basically these gaps in his story. And it became clear that he couldn't remember what actually happened. Today, Vaughn's family maintains his innocence. They claim while there's little evidence Vaughn could hurt his family, there were troubling signs that Kimberly Vaughn was capable of violence. And, and I went up the stairs and Sandy and Blake came and says, Monster Mommy doesn't want to talk to anybody else. You've got to stay away from her or she'll hurt you too. Following up on Murder in Oregon, host Lauren Bright Pacheco and iHeart present Murder in Illinois. While police say Vaughn staged the crime scene to look like his wife was the killer, defense investigators claim they have unexamined evidence pointing to Kimberly as the shooter. The podcast provides extensive interviews with Vaughn's family and supporters who claim the notorious family annihilator was actually the victim and not the perpetrator. Spoiler alert, as of the time of this podcast, there's only one episode of Murder in Illinois available, but we're going to be talking about plot points from the first five episodes. So if you want to remain completely spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. So this is an interesting, first of all, case at its heart, because I think that Lauren sets up a situation where there's something that a case where everybody thinks they know what happened. That's been the media narrative. That's been the police narrative. But there's something else maybe there. Now, Kevin, that is a hard like load to lift and a hard thing to follow up on, right? It is if your main premise is, I'm going to tell you something different, or yeah. that you don't know what you have been told what the regular narrative is. So you really have to bring the receipts on that, especially in this case, because the details are such where on the surface, it seems, you know, pretty clear cut when you have, you know, uh, a family, uh, everybody in the car is shot and you have, you know, a guy limping away with non life threatening injuries and everybody else in the car is dead. It's, you know, most of the time it's that person was the shooter. And that's what the police said. And, you know, there are other things involved in this. So as somebody who's an infamous felon right now, this is a, you know, a very sensational case, very tragic. There's a lot of emotion around it. If you're going to take it on, you're going to have to convince a lot of people right from go that you are not on a quixotic journey here. Yeah, you're bringing the goods. Now, Laura, this is uh, in your notes. I saw an issue that I share with you is that. We haven't gotten, and what we've listened to so far, any sense that there could be an alternative theory of the crime. Do you wish that we had been given that teaser up front? Like, you're going to hear what the, the narrative is, but sort of trust us, you're also going to hear this, this, and this. Yeah, absolutely. Because as of now, as I'm listening to this from somebody that has worked as a defense investigator, I was, I'm was i always happy when we hear a defense investigator in a podcast. But as of now, I hear his family. And I can tell you in like all the cases I worked on, like all the families sound like that. They're all aggrieved at how the police treat them. They're all aggrieved at how the police treat their loved one who's being questioned. There's always like, this narrative, you know, in terms of what I've experienced, the narrative that the other person is to blame, the other person's family might be no good or something. So I guess me personally, you know, I think it's interesting to go through because it did set up a very detailed portrait of the family and of the relationship. And, And that was like three episodes of that. But I guess I wish I had known in the first episode when we're setting up the story a little bit about like, why we don't believe he's the killer. Aside from just that, like, Kimberly is, you know, a snotty rich person or whatever. So I kind of want to know, like, a little bit of a teaser because I, to me, it's structured like a traditional true crime book. Like, when we were writing true crime in, like, the 2000s, this is the format that they followed, which is, like, you start with, like, either, like, some little prologue that hints at what happens And then you go back from the beginning and you set up the whole relationship leading up to the crime. So in in that regard, I'm like used to that format. But I guess I I guess I want to know a little bit more about 
why we don't think this is actually the story of what happened. Yeah, you want to know what's fishy about the case. Right. But there's also right. a very big difference between the way you do print and the way you do audio, especially in long book form versus long audio form. I mean, isn't it implied that there's some other thing going on here? Well, she says it's not just implied. She says it. But then the implications are very kind of one-sided because we only get one family's take, which, Toby, is a question I have for you because our primary source here is the Vaughns, the alleged killer's family. And Lauren signposts over and over and over again that we're only hearing their side. Um, I'll talk about that framework in a minute and just how that's handled. But what's interesting to me is that aside from the whether it's true or not true aspect of it, a lot of what we're getting in these first several episodes is basically like cultural and class differences between these two families. And that is supposed to give us some sort of sense of culpability or guilt or non-culpability or non-guilt. Over and over and over again, we're hearing that Chris's family's criticism of the Phillips family is they are educated and they judge people who aren't. They eat dinner too late. They sort of have, you know highfalutin thoughts about uneducated people. If you didn't have that, you weren't good enough for anybody type attitude. I just let it roll off my shoulder. It's like, oh, well, I mean, you know, I'm not a book smart person. I'm more of a street smart. You know, you show it to me once, I can stand up and give a presentation on it. How are you receiving that as you listen to this podcast? You know, I think there's like three things going on with this. So this is a pretty well-known case. Is that is that correct or no? I, I suppose I mean, for it is. people in that area. I hadn't yeah, heard yeah, of yeah. it before this podcast, but it is. Oh, yes. I thought, I, yeah. So I, I don't know. I just thought when you guys were talking about it. So I think there's three things. One of which is my impression is that because it's, it seems like it's an open and shut case, like there's a certain amount of sort of rehabbing of Chris's image that needs to happen in order to make it seem like it was possible that he wasn't the person so that you have to kind of set the scene where he, you know, doesn't necessarily have the predilection for that, that kind of thing since he apparently has been sort of made out as being this family killer. And that's what most people know about him. Um, so then the second thing, yeah, is this class. And quite honestly, I, I got kind of sick <laughs> of hearing about it from that family. And and in some ways, it's kind of interesting because it seemed to me that their real complaints are sort of these stereotypes about highfalutin, too big for their britches, educated families. Like, they're not going to listen to her unless she has a master's degree about anything. And all these things that just, you know, they don't really ring true as anything other than stereotypes to me. So I kind of feel like these stories... Maybe they're telling them sincerely in the way that they perceive them, but they just seem off to me. Yeah. Toby, there's one example that really stuck out to me. And I very much, I I agree. I don't think the Vaughns are like inflating things. I think they're literally just giving their lens on things. The one that stuck out to me was when they talked about being invited over for dinner to the Phillips house. And the son, uh, Chris Vaughn's brother, was basically like, it was crazy because we were invited over at six and the mom didn't even start chopping vegetables until we got there. Yeah, we got there at like six o'clock. They waited until we got there to actually start cooking it. In my mind, I would have prepped the stuff because there's a lot of like chopping and, and preparing that you could have done ahead of time, but they didn't. They waited until we got there to start cooking. And I'm like... Yeah, but you also just said the mom worked all day. (laughs) And like, you know, uh, we know the Vaughn's mother was a stay-at-home mother. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, they sort of set up these two professional people, invited them over, yet they didn't start cooking until I got there. But that is, to me, very much just sort of the rhythm of a family where two people work. But it was framed as something, quote, weird. And I found that to be like... Chipping away maybe at not the credibility, but sort of the result of all of the, quote, evidence were being presented by the Vaughn family, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they've got an argument they're trying to make, right? And I think they think that they're making it convincingly, but I, you know, it just doesn't ring true all the time. And And again, I don't necessarily think they're lying, but I think their perception of stuff can be a little bit off. But I think what the most interesting part of the whole dynamic to me was, you know, by the accounts in this, you've got one family that doesn't put a whole lot of 
uh, emphasis on education other than they're like proud when Chris does well. But he apparently is very smart and is able to kind of figure things out and, and, you know, you get the sense could be very good academically. And then you've got Kim, who's from this family that psychotically values education. Allegedly. Allegedly. Again, I'm like, you can't see my air quotes. I was trying to do it with the tone of my voice, but I don't have that kind of range. And, uh, and she like, she's a disaster. She's an at, underachiever. At yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's another one of the kind of interesting things is, is that it, you have these perceptions, but then the kids from the family are actually sort of more suited toward the other family yeah, yeah. desires. So I don't know. I mean, she spends a lot of time on this dynamic, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you can argue about whether it's too long or not, but it's I think- It's too long. We don't need to argue about it. All right. Well, <laughs> you, you, you can you can say it, but I, I think there are some sort of nuanced things that come out of it, yeah. which I imagine will be important later. Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I find the dynamic between the families really interesting, um, those tensions there. But, I mean, they are rather rudimentary when you have families where one is, you know, more educated than the other. You know, the re- the resentment kind of goes both ways. The, the Vaughns may be way more polite in stating it, but they are intimidated or put off or whatever. You know, they this I mean, I don't think they're exchanging Christmas cards anymore. Let's put it that way. But the thing that I am curious about is because I, you're right, we do spend a lot of time. I mean, really, episode two and three and four and good part of five have to do with the Vaughn's perception of Chris's life, the relationship, the marriage, the day of the crime, the funeral, the arrest. I mean, and Lauren does a great job of, of signposting the idea. Look, we couldn't get the Phillipses to talk. And so, yes, so she's not trying to pull a fast one on the listener. This is just what the Vaughns have to say. But we hear so much of it. I wonder really if we couldn't have telescoped that because it leaves me thinking that the tension is somewhat relevant to the story of actual innocence when having sort of looked ahead, I know it's not. I I think that it ends up putting an awful lot of emphasis on something that we could get to some things more importantly, more quickly. Well, I can, I mean, I'm going to give you my like editorial opinion of something that was really missing here. So we get the signposting again and again and again. This is one family's point of view. But Lauren, never as the, the host and journalist here, says, here's what I hear when I hear this family saying X, Y, and Z. And I understand that if you're hearing it, you might be thinking X, Y, and Z. It's very much just connective tissue narration. I would no, I have loved, heard her say that. Though. Well, she I, does, here's what I yeah. would have loved to have heard. I would love to have heard her say instead of just, again, this is only one family's point of view. I would love to heard her say, in a case like this, it's difficult to hear something like this because, you know, when you hear this, you're hearing only one family's perception of what happened. Like it's, it's there's no analysis. I I I think that the analysis may have helped me understand why we heard so much of it. I mean, that's. That's just my like concern about it because it just does seem to be like sort of a, a defense case for a really long time. Laura, I have a question for you. Um, you made a really interesting note about, you know, the differences between the families that also might inform their navigation of the criminal justice system. What did you mean about that? Yeah, well, I thought it was really interesting that when, you know, this crime unfolds and we're hearing how Chris ends up at the police department And his parents hear about it from the news media. They don't even get a phone call from the police. And when they eventually get to the police station and they're trying to get information. And then we were put in a room and it was recorded and they went through questions and everything. And each time, you know, we keep asking, how's Chris? Where is Chris? And they said, well, he's here, but he's unavailable right now. They are sort of taking initially the police, it seems like at like face value, like that they're just waiting in the lobby and they're waiting for the police to help them and everything. And, you know, at that point, Kimberly's family has already got like a family spokesperson and a lawyer. And so you see that in that way, they had sort of an advantage going into navigating the criminal justice system in terms of getting into action a little bit quickly. And, you know, then you see Chris's family who doesn't know what to do. And obviously it's a very overwhelming 
awful situation. They're realizing that their grandchildren are dead and they're at this hotel and, you know, trying to get information. That was so weird, right? The hotel stuff. The hotel. Yeah, I want to talk about that because I'm like, what the hell? I have never heard of a police department kicking somebody out at what like one in the morning in a hospital hospital johnny without shoes with like those little booties that they give you the footy socks at the hospital or something and then the hotels like i was like was this supposed to be like some sort of like we're gonna press him really hard we're gonna release him at like one in the morning and see what he does he's gonna gonna be like oh shit don't release me i'm gonna confess because i don't want to go out in my hospital johnny like what the (laughs) hell was that like it seemed almost like a clerical error that got turned (laughs) into something like more important but it was just like a bunch of bumbling fucking clerical errors that's how it seemed to me it was a disaster and then he ends up at like the motel eight with some target clothes i'll pay you twice i'll pay you double yeah it's surprising until you hear those guys like interrogating him yeah Mm. and it's just like where where the fuck did you come up with this you know like what movie did you watch that that's given you the uh giving you the idea that this is the way you're going to go about getting this guy to confess because it's just like browbeating him and then like insulting his manliness and put your head down. I don't blame. Put your head up. No, back down again. You know, it was like, yeah. dude, horrible. It was like a real f- bad movie. It was really what bad. What the hell is going on here? The shame. The shame of it all, Chris. I just don't want to hear what you got. The shame of it all. I've been over this. The shame of it all. Why you put your head back down? I'd be shamed too. If I did what you did, I'd be shamed. I'd put my head down. I would put my head down. Go ahead, put your head back down. So then I could see them be like, okay, you're out of here. You're out of here with that dress and your underpants and your funny (laughs) socks. And your two Johnnies, one on the front, one on the back. It's the only way to wear it. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the seeping bandages. We heard all of that. Mm, Detail. Yeah, it's 36 inches and of thir- gauze. Uh, what the? What, uh, I don't know. a lot of gauze, I have a lot of man. questions about that. I have a lot of questions about sort of how the police behaved here, too. But also, Toby, I mean, okay, so I am trying to, as a listener, put myself in the shoes of both sides, right? Because we know we don't have the Phillips side. So I'm thinking, like, what might they have been thinking at the time? And I do think about the fact that they were informed first the fact that uh, Chris was immediately a suspect, like objectively that makes sense because he's alive right. and the rest of them are dead. I mean, objectively, the fact that he would immediately be in the frame, given what law enforcement knows about family annihilation and these kinds of cases, like it does make sense, right? I mean, that was my feeling. And I, you know, they, they complain about it quite a bit. And like, why would this happen? But it's like, you know, the husband's always the first suspect and that's even when he's not like walking down the road with with like these lesser you know wounds and his family's all shot up like just up the road so yeah that didn't surprise me i mean and and they're like they, they wouldn't even let us go and see him it's like well of course not he's a yeah, suspect no. like that's not what you do with suspects is to let their family go and hang out with them for a little bit they're trying to get a confession out of them cuz they think he did it yeah and they might be wrong but it's not like the, the the audio you get of him is just ridiculous. Yeah. But the idea that he's a plausible and good suspect is not ridiculous. No, like not that, at all. That is not surprising in the slightest. It would be weird if he wasn't. So, Laura, one of the things I kept thinking about on the Phillips side of this, because we hear over and over again that they didn't want to participate. You know, they clearly believe their daughter and their grandchildren were murdered by their son-in-law. I find myself thinking, like, I don't blame them for not participating if that's what they believe like you understand that right having written true crime books very often people on the victim side whether or not they've been influenced by cops or prosecutors or not they're just like we cannot do this like this story is over for us do you do you understand that take yeah no absolutely and it's it's really hard when you're a journalist and you're trying to portray both sides in a case like that where you do have a murder and you know in in uh, the book that I wrote, the victim's parents wanted absolutely nothing to do with being interviewed, talking to me, sharing information. So I had to recreate their side through interviews with people that had talked to them. Mm-hmm. And then I remember like just like pounding the pavement trying to find somebody like a friend of the victim that would talk to me, like somebody else on that side. And it was really hard because 
in a lot of those cases, people don't want to relive it. They want to move on. They see you as sort of profiting from retelling the story. They're like, what's the point of retelling the story at this point? I don't want to go through this again. So it is, it's really hard. And, you know, there was definitely situations where, you know, like I had a police detective who was like super gung-ho to participate. So yeah, I used him as like my narrator, like the protagonist, because, you know, you go with what you have, but it's also when you are trying to kind of go back and forth between different points of view. I mean, it's often very challenging to find people on the opposite side. It is very challenging. I'll say it's easier in print, because in print and in books, you can use statements that the victim's family has made on the record, things that they said in court, things that they told other reporters. Sometimes it's the perpetrator side, actually. That's Right. Yeah. But you can't just, um, I mean, I think of our one of our books, Kevin, that we wrote, probably our favorite book that we wrote. I have since learned a bunch of information from a side that was not available to us when we were writing the book. And I'm just thinking like, man... I would have loved to have had that in the book. But at the same time, we did have plenty. We had journals. We had, you know, testimony. In audio, it's much harder because if you don't have it, you just have to say what they said. And that's that's difficult to produce, right? Uh, Yes, it is. But when I listen to this podcast... Like, I'm just going to confess, it just feels like this sense of incompleteness about what we've heard so far. And we've heard a lot. We've heard five episodes, uh, even though only one is out right now. And it's a it's a multi-part series. And so I was like, what are we not? What am I not getting? So I did the thing that, like you're not supposed to do, like turn to the end of the book and like read the last page to find out who did it. I just started Googling this case a little more about, well, what is the Innocence Project and those people actually saying? Because I didn't like, I, like I said Project in the beginning. The involved in this? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or they're look, yeah. See, to me, that's something I would have wanted to know up front. Well, they, they did talk <laughs> about that in the first episode, and they said, oh, I think we have a claim of actual innocence, which perked up my attention, but I felt like I didn't know anything more about like where that was going other than that was out there. So I'm dying for that. And so, I, again, you know, even though we're in the spoiler, I'm not going to give it away, but there is an awful lot about the medication that Kimberly was taking, about some of the stuff going on inside the house. You know, there's also some weird things that... Chris was up to, which all came out at trial. There's some forensic stuff about DNA and splatter, uh, blood pooling and the direction of bullets, things like this, right? There's some solid stuff there, but I haven't gotten a sense of any of that just yet. So I feel like it's coming, we're just, it's taking a really long time to get there. And I think about, okay, well, if I'm a regular listener of this podcast and it's out once a week, I will have waited a month before I kind of get a sense of like, why do you think that this is a plausible story, Right. So that's, you know, I'm kind of withholding judgment completely on this because I feel like the opportunity to really tell the story hasn't come yet. I've expressed my concerns about what we've heard so far, but I think that there is a story here. And sometimes we do these things and we're like, hey, you know, we've only listened to two episodes and this is really bad. Or we've said, you know, I wish we could have some more of this to have a better sense of it. And I feel like just for me, guys, I don't feel like I've got that sense yet. So I don't really want to go when we get to thumbs up and thumbs down and thumbs sideways and stuff. You know, I I don't know if I'm like in a position to like really pass judgment yet, only because I kind of spoiled the ending for myself. And I feel like maybe a. Maybe the, the, it's going to really turn in a different way. So you're thinking like we should break format here and like. Well, I'm, I can't tell everybody what they want to do, but I'm. I, that's normally we wouldn't do that. We have talked about that sometimes, but well, you know. Well, I'm willing to break format a little bit and just say this, and then I'm going to go to the panel. Everything that you've just told me and everything I've read about the case and everything I know, like I do think there's more interesting stuff coming. I am going to reserve my vote. I would say. That if we didn't know all we knew, at this point, I'd give the podcast a thumbs down. I'm going to be honest with you. Just because of the way that it's structured, Mm -hmm. I think the editorial decisions, it could have been structured better. Maybe there was a required number of episodes. Maybe there was an editor who had opinions that weren't allowed to sort of be injected. I do maybe think that I want more of Lauren in the show doing more journalistic stuff and less just narration stuff. So at this point, if this is all we had, I'd say thumbs down. That being said... I know more than I know, than I should know. So it is hard to give a grade. Laura, what do you think? 
Um, well, I think, you know, this is like when we review the Netflix shows, you know, that Netflix has consigned like eight episodes. And so when you are going into that as somebody that's telling the story, knowing you have eight episodes to tell your story, you're going to tell it a little differently than if you've got four episodes. So I think my feeling is I think that we've got interesting information. I have a really complete picture of the family dynamic, of the relationship dynamic from the side of you of the family. And, you know, going in knowing kind of, obviously, because of our own Toby Ball, that this particular company's podcast are usually like 10 or so episodes long. 12. 12. That I think, you know, this is like, Part one is like the family setup, and I'm thinking we're going to get into the investigation. So this is a much deeper dive. And, you know, so, so far, I'm interested. I'm listening. I would have liked a little more information up front, you know, based on knowing that about how it spread out, a little bit more of a teaser along the way about what the actual claims of innocence are going to be so that I know kind of like what I'm looking forward to. But, I, you know, I did feel like the input from the family so far in the story was definitely something that was interesting. I just wanted a little more information about the investigation. Toby Ball. Yeah. So I, you know, sort of echoing what Laura said, I I assume that it has to be 12 episodes at least. So we've really listened to the first act, right? Uh, Of the three act thing. So just keeping that in mind. um, And I also, I don't know if you guys all listened to all of Murder in Oregon, but it was similar to that, where it starts with sort of the background of of sort of what the basic case was, and then as things went on, there was a lot of twisting and turning, and I think that's that's kind of Lauren's mo. You know, did did the um, the stuff go on a little bit longer than I would have chosen for some of the family dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I think some of what what I found was interesting was. I felt like I had some insight into that family that maybe they didn't necessarily weren't trying to telegraph. Um, <laughs> you mean you the know, Vaughn family? Like you learned the Vaughn more. family, yeah. yeah, yeah I just, actually found that too. Like I learned more about maybe if Chris was guilty, like maybe there were more clues there also, other uh, yeah, than well, what they were trying the, to defend him with. That's the thing at with. the beginning. It's yes. like, well, he always found out these like really interesting ways of like solving these problems. He and- rejected. <laughs> he re- he got a Christmas gift and he took it apart. And made right. a new thing. Like, I actually felt like there were things there that were like, well, maybe he's super fucking weird, but we're just not hearing. And that's what that's what I meant when I said, like, I wanted more of Lauren. You know what I mean? Right. Giving that voice. Another thing that kind of stuck out to me was when they were talking about, like, how busy he was. Like, Kim wouldn't cook, so he'd go and work, and he'd have to come home and cook, and he never saw his kids. And then, like, three minutes later, they're talking about how he wanted a farmhouse that he could work and fix up. I'm like, when? When is he going to work and fix it up? Like, he doesn't even see his kids anymore. Like, he's not going to sleep. But it was just a way of contrasting him with Kim, who wanted a big house so she could impress the neighbors. Uh, So anyway, I kind of thought, again, I I mean, I think you're getting this this pretty complete picture. I'm assuming it's going to have some payoff. I have a little bit of a sense of what's coming. And so I I liked it. I'm going to I'll be listening to the rest of it. So I would give it a thumbs up if that's what we're doing this time. Or if not, I would say I'm not going to give it one because it's so early. But if I was going to, I would give it a thumbs up. Some of us are reserving judgment. Some of us are grading now. So it's mixed. And we're going to put our judgments on hold in a rare format breaking episode of Crime Writer's Ed. To put it in an envelope, <laughs> stick it in a drawer, <laughs> and we'll come we'll come back to it in a couple of months. Put it in the Irish feelings box the and Irish stuff feelings it under box, the bed. <laughs> stuff it in the bed. Put it there with all the birthday cards that were never opened and still have $5 bills in them. Yeah, so that was fun. All right. So, Kevin, here we are in the business section. What do we have going on in our Crime Writers On, Partners in Crime Media Patreon right now? we got the Crime Writers On after show, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about our summer vacation plans. Oh, is that going to be interesting, though? I hope so. It's going to be interesting. I hope so. i got a lot of book learning to do. Oh, Speaking okay. of book learning, uh, Toby Ball is going to be coming out soon with a new episode of the Deep Dive Book Club. Really? Where they are uh, talking about the book The Golden Thread. Ooh. And later this month, we'll have new episodes from Laura Bricker from Leave It to Bricker and a new Married with Podcast. But there's but. a more important thing about to happen on our Patreon. What's that? That I'm super excited about, which is 
Drinks with Kevin. What is that? Yeah, well, you remember last summer where we did a lot of interactive? This was very, like, pandemic-related. No, here's what I remember. What? I remember last summer coming out on the deck to be like, what do you want for dinner? And you were like, I am talking to our Patreon people right now, Rebecca. Leave. And I just saw you having this whole event with, like, dozens of people we're doing that again, apparently. Yeah, on this Wednesday, it's Drinks with Kevin. So for patrons, we'll get on the old uh, Patreon website on Crowdcast and uh, grab your favorite beverage, your uh, whatever libation you want. Coffee. We'll have. We'll be at the virtual bar. I'll be bringing folks on screen, and we'll be talking about what you're drinking, how your day at work was. We're just going to mix it up. We always have a lot work? of folks. Like, how does that actually work? If you're on our Patreon, you're like a patron. No, I'm actually, this is a real yeah. question. Say I'm a patron of Partners of Crime Media. I pay like six bucks a month or whatever. How do I sign up for this thing to have drinks with you? Like you just physically, go, how do I do it? You go to the Patreon feed and you just click register. Okay. So and it's free to-, to do. And yeah, you'll get an email reminding you that's about to start. It's very easy. So if you're not a Patreon person now, you go to patreon.com slash Partners of Crime Media. You would sign up. Yep. And then you would see the feed. And then you would see the Drinks with Kevin event. And you would go to that post and hit register. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I'm seriously, like, I actually want to know. You know why? Why? Because I want to come to your event. Yeah, but you don't have to come on the computer, Rebecca. You can just walk into the next room. I can't be a guest. Well, I don't know. Maybe next time it'll be drinks with uh, with Rebecca. Drinks with Rabia. I think drinks with, drink, Rabia doesn't, doesn't drink. drink. But she has chai. She's chai. I think drinks with Laura Bricker would be a good yeah. one to have. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Let's do it. We'll do more this summer with that. Mm-hmm. All right, Kevin, uh, before we end the business section, two things. Mm-hmm. One, people should sign up for our newsletter, yes or no? Yes, they should. Is it free? It's absolutely free. And what's in it? Everything is in it. We have uh, we have notes from the crime writers. We have CWO behind the scenes. Merch? We got merch. Nobody went for the merch this week. I did. What? I bought, well, well you know. Not with this week's, or I should say last week's merch. Oh, I got last week's merch. I mean, I got the, the t-shirt. Pre- yeah. You get the t-shirt? That's... I got the criminal justice reform is patriotic t-shirt. It's freaking great. You didn't get the t-shirt from last week? What was the t-shirt from last week? It says, find someone who makes you laugh like Kevin makes Rebecca oh, laugh. Oh, I'm buying that. You should. It's got my face on it. It's awesome. <laughs> so that's free. How did they get that newsletter? You just go to crimewriterson.com. You can see it right at the top of the page. Put in your email address. That's all you need. And finally, Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Jimmy Allen and Katie Myers Scott. Bless you. And before we go back, want to join our patron? How do you do that? Go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And thus ends. Like it says at the beginning of every podcast episode. And thus ends. And thus ends the the business business section. section. Moving on. En Mijas, Málaga buscan desesperadamente a una joven de 19 años. Rocío Vannikov. Rocío, la joven Rocío Vannikov. In 1999, 19-year-old Rocio Wanenkoff disappeared from her Spanish seaside town. Her body was discovered weeks later, having been strangled and stabbed in the back. A sensational murder trial gripped the country, but the case had been considered closed for years. But another crime in a nearby town suddenly raised questions if the right person was in prison. And the evidence turned the investigation away from Spain and toward England. He's not quite right. I don't know what's wrong, but something's not right, and I'm not right. I just think, oh, I better watch him because he's scaring me. But I don't know why. The Netflix bilingual documentary Murder by the Coast tells the story of a sensational Spanish crime and the way the media shaped a rush to judgment by police. It features interviews with families, journalists, and investigators mixed with archival footage to sketch out the missteps that led to a national tragedy. We are going to be talking about plot points for Murder by the Coast, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Laura Bricker, you and I both love a true crime case in another country, do we not? Absolutely. And um, we've had a lot of these lately where we've had these sort of like quick hit, you know, stories of crimes in other countries that, you know, I wasn't familiar with before going in. So you get, you know, an interesting case, you get a window into another country's criminal justice system, and usually get some really good location shots of the country where this happens. So, you know, I, I really like watching these because it's like, 
I mean, we've all heard, for the most part, most of the cases in the U.S., like, you know, from whatever. And so I've, I'd never heard of this case. I'm like, well, this is this is very interesting. Um, definitely. One of the things I found myself thinking, Toby, was that, like, if this were an American story, this maybe on Netflix would have been a multi-part documentary. But here we have a story that took place in another country, and it's just a one-part documentary. What, Kevin, is about an hour and a half? Is that about yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's very telescoped. And I'm curious, Toby, as to whether or not you think that was good or bad for the story in terms of just like a media product. What do you think? You know, there were some things that I thought I wanted to know a little bit more about, maybe. But it's not like it's really a tale with a lot of twists and turns. It seems like it has one twist. And so, like, I don't know. I I don't know if that could carry like six 55-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it seemed like it was about right. As a matter of fact, that towards the end, I was like, I, you know what? This thing actually could have been like an hour and 15 minutes. Mm. But I, I but I do think they left some stuff, some, some issues on the floor, which maybe would have been, to my mind, would have been kind of interesting to hear if only just to have some like sense about Spanish culture and Spanish justice system and stuff like that. But the Spanish already know that stuff, so that might not have been why they didn't include it. Well, I actually, this documentary is bilingual, Kevin. It wasn't just like mm-hmm. in Spanish with English subtitles. Actually, like there were a lot of subjects in it too who spoke English. British and, subjects, actually. Yeah, and I'm actually curious as to what you think of the format because I did find myself asking that question. Like, we blow through some twists and turns. And we hear some things very telescoped, like this person was arrested. But by the way, she'd been let let out a long time ago because of X, Y, Z. And like, we're missing that part. Like, did you find yourself thinking, is this format right for this story? Well, I mean, I think so uh, because of the the folks involved. We we did have, you know, Spanish victims and a British perpetrator. So it makes sense that some of the interviews would be in Spanish and others in English, of course. I'm kind of with Toby where I didn't feel like the twist seemed very twisty. Although I like the documentary, it's pretty straightforward. I feel like one of the interesting things that was lost was more of the media's impact on the public perception and the and the rush to judgment. They did have that, but I thought maybe there was more to dig in. First of all, you had like that scene where she comes out of the uh, the police station and everybody's you know. You're talking about Dolores, Dolores, the alleged killer. Dolores, the alleged killer. They're, they're calling her a murderer. But one of the reasons why, you know, they focus on her, they they kind of like fit this, uh, you know, they make the crime fit the profile, prof- profile fit the crime, whatever, is that because she's a lesbian, <laughs> that they start coming up with all this, uh, well, you know. Lesbian lesb- rage. Lesbian rage. Lesbians are more masculine and therefore more violent or whatever it was. It certainly is, you know, to an American audience, it seems very laughable. It was fucking crazy. But, yeah, yeah, but to, you know, that European audience of that time, whatever, um, you know, it really did sort of, you know, push this that, okay, we really have to nail her because there really was no solid evidence. I have no idea how that worked, honestly. Yeah. Lara, I don't know about you, but like, even so, so for those of us, those that listening who have not watched it, so the victim's mother is a lesbian and she had this ex-girlfriend, Dolores, who, by the way was like the victim's stepmother for like a long yes. period of time. And the theory of the crime, for no reason, with no evidence, was that Dolores, the ex-girlfriend, was somehow still angry at her ex-girlfriend for their breakup years later and decided to kill her basically stepdaughter out of some sort of protracted, long-lasting breakup masculine rage. And the evidence was what? That she was Nothing. Seen do- she was seen doing what? What was she seen doing? Taking a knife and stabbing, stabbing a photograph. The picture. Stabbing oh, the, year, the like missing years poster. before? No, like what she's missing. But like, why? Like, uh, but I, yeah. Uh, ah. She yeah. explains why she did it. Yeah. But then somebody was, it was like a Russian housekeeper or something. Was it was like, insane. She was stabbing the picture and that no was habla, what I knew. No habla espanol, stabbing the photo. Yes, Laura. So your yeah. thoughts as to the evidence versus public outrage about this crime? Yeah, it's just absolute insanity. I, I was watching some like, how is this woman? Like, because you, you're seeing in the beginning and you know that the media and that the police and everybody's really latched on to this theory because, you know, one of the first scenes we see 
is the victim's mother being like, you know, this is not a soap opera when she comes out and she's speaking to everybody that's outside, you know, these are, and so you're like the soap and then you, you're hearing, you know, you're seeing how like all of the tabloids have sort of dubbed this and like this like love triangle or like this, you know, is really nuts. So I, I actually went and looked up a little more because one of the things that I actually felt was a little lacking in this was there's really no information about how there are any sort of what what the government and what the police and the prosecution do for Dolores when she's proven to be innocent uh, when she's released like they're like oh end of story and you know that was even the victim's mother when she's released yeah. was like well it wasn't my fault yeah yeah so it was like totally <laughs> even say her name she says that lady it's like yeah. freaking bonkers so I looked I was looking it up and in Spain this is listed this particular case it's listed as the biggest miscarriage of justice in Spain since 1910. So wow. if, if that's what happened the in case, 1910, is that the next Netflix? <laughs> yeah, what yeah. happened in 1910? Some other case. Um, so I was like, if that's the, it's the biggest case since 1910, I guess I want a little more information about what they're going to do to make things right with this woman. Or is she... It's an inquisition. Like, is she suing them? Like, she came out and she had her little picnic table covered with, like, the bad tablecloth and had a press conference. And that's, like, all that she gets? <laughs> like, that's all that happens to her after after being in jail for, like, two years? For yeah. no apparent fucking reason, I'm like, what is this <laughs> nonsense? You know, Toby, so. what did you what did you think? And like, like we never want to sort of vilify like the family members of a victim because we know that they've had like the worst years of their life here, but this is a situation where the victim's mother has basically gone along with the accusation of her ex partner and the murder of her daughter, and then when the exoneration happens, that is a clear exoneration because you have somebody who confesses to the murder. Her mother is just sort of like, meh. What did you think of that whole dynamic? I didn't put her in jail. Um, <laughs> She's in a book learning. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's always hard to tell because who knows what other stuff the documentarians left out. And maybe she's actually very compassionate. And they just dropped that stuff. But from this, it doesn't really reflect super well on her. It was just surprising how quickly, like without any evidence, she was able to jump on that. I mean, they were partners. Yeah. And I guess maybe people blamed our exes and who knows how things ended with them or whatever, but that seems strange. And then, you know, when it's clearly not her, there's no sense of like, even if it's like, yeah, it, it, nobody thinks you actually put her in jail, but you're pretty quick to like condemn her, like no bones about it. And don't you, don't you think you should be like, you know, when this is all over, be a little apologetic to her since you used to be partners and they, you raised your kids together. So I don't know. The whole thing, that was kind of, I mean, she's, she's, up. she seemed to like the cameras. Uh, she seemed to have opinions. And unlike the mother of the other victim, who just seemed kind of tragic and w- was sort of frustrated with the judicial system, which I think she had every right to be, but again, wasn't, wasn't like vindictive in the same way. Kevin, so there's a, like a turn here that, I'll just say it in my opinion, this is what the documentary should have been. It shouldn't have been framed around this first killing. It should have been framed around. This is the rare instance where maybe it should have been framed around the killer. Uh Because basically we find out that this guy, Tony King, who had been doing this series of horrible attacks in England, then, you know, got somehow exonerated and went to Spain and then committed these other murders. And there is a very compelling story there about, like, a serial perpetrator. And with his earlier victim in England, Christine Bluer, who was a victim of his, who had it was this beautiful young woman who had been this aspiring actress and dancer and all the things that she had, you know, looking forward to. And, you know, he basically ruined her life. And then, you know, she saw him be arrested, but then... Because of the criminal justice system, like he was out and was able to go somewhere else. Yeah, like, I found that really to be the heart of the documentary, and it was sort of wrapped in this murder by the coast package. Does that make sense to you? Like it does. The story in Spain really originated with this other, to me, almost like more seminal story. Yeah, it made me feel like I, I didn't get enough of Tony King. Mm. Uh, Not like I, him person. You don't want to talk to him. No, but as far as, you know, a little more about what made him tick, we knew he was the Holloway Strangler, but certainly I think even though the mothers of the two Spanish victims are there, they're very stoic, and their pain is very real, but they're very stoic, and as far as, like, 
openly sort of emotional, giving me sort of this real emotional pull was Christine Bluer, mm. who was a strangling victim from 1985. She was the heart of the documentary. Well, she wasn't. Yeah, but position, But as far as like a supporting role. Sort of a source, yeah. She really kind of came through. And maybe it's because of the stoicism of everybody else. But on an emotional level, you see someone, you see photos of her as a young woman, you know, that's around the time that she was attacked. And then you see her today, and she's an older lady. And, you know, she just sort of has this look of like the world has really beat her down because of this. My hair was everywhere, blood was everywhere. I didn't know what to hold, my head, my hand, so I'm kind of cowering in the corner. And that's when I said, please don't kill my baby. I'm pregnant, please don't kill my baby. She used a word that that the British people use an awful lot to describe this kind of attack where she said he started to interfere with her. And I started thinking that that word in the American way that we use it seems really appropriate. He interfered with her life and really set her off. We find out later that she was this artist and had a recording contract and all that got derailed because of this horrible event that happened to her. And... You know, I'm never going to say, well, you know, strangle but live versus getting murdered, you know, well, so what? It's it's horrible for everybody. She just really articulated that. And, you know, maybe if I spoke Spanish, I would understand. I, I no, could connect better, better with the uh, with no, the others. But see, to me, it's not about that. It's not. Okay. It's not about one story being sadder or worse than the other. It's about the way that this documentary was constructed. Oh, So right. I feel horribly for the Spanish victims and their families, but I also feel like we got the story of what really happened like so late that the mm. impact of his earlier crimes like fell at a point that diminished the impact of the crimes that we were given like right away like to me it's just a question of the way the story was ordered that felt i don't know like i felt like i should feel more for everybody than i did but it felt like misordered and a little bit rushed if that makes sense i have an idea guys how about this you do it backwards you do the second murder first Yes. Right. Yes. And yeah. then the whole thing is up, and then, and then, but somehow it's connected to this other murder. And when you go to the first murder, and they've got a suspect, mm-hmm. you're thinking that Dolores is the killer in the second, because as soon as we get through the first one, and Dolores goes to jail, and there's another murder, we're like, well, let me guess what's going to happen. The suspense next. is gone. Suspense yeah. is gone. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Just my idea. Yeah, I kind of feel like the the outrage in all this, in some ways, is the fact that this guy who is a serial sexual predator who goes to jail comes out offends again is able to just you know fly to spain change his name and nobody knows who he is yeah (laughs) you know especially with these open borders and stuff it's like and interpol's like you should be on the lookout for this guy and they're like oh yeah well he's here and they kind of leave it at that (laughs) was that thing we watched the serpent thing what was that thing yeah Yeah. the serpent yeah i mean he was sort of like that like he did a bunch of shit somewhere but there's two outrages there's that and there's the fact that a lesbian was sent to prison because she was a lesbian. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess that's the and, other story. And, and that that they were so, like, closeted in a way because even though they never actually admitted to having a relationship, they're like, oh, we were just very fond of each other because <laughs> of the culture that they were living yes. in. homophobia. Yeah, yes. it, was, it was ridiculous. I mean, that was one of the questions that I thought would have been helpful for me to know is, like, because you get the sense at the end is that she's fighting kind of this lonely battle to like get some kind of resolution out of this. And then Laura says, it's the, you know, best known wrongful conviction since 1910. I mean, is that, is this become like a cause celeb? Are, are people just like, you know, we got to stop homophobia in Spain? Yeah, is, like what is, is the like, cause right now, right? That would have been interesting to me uh, to see if this has led to some kind of social reform or, or some introspection on the part of the Spanish press about how they kind of report on, you know, or to see her now, we didn't see that. You know, we didn't see the to me, there's like a lack of the payoff. Like, we didn't get her today saying, like, This is how my life was ruined by XYZ. We didn't get any sort of contriteness by the people who accused her. We didn't get the uh, the family members of the victims who knew who the killer was now, sort of. And we also didn't get the killer now. I mean, there's a lot of just sort of like this happened, this happened, this happened. I don't know. 
Well, all right. I think we should do, we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the Netflix documentary Murder by the Coast? It's bilingual. It's in Spanish and in English. It, it's about a, a case that took place that was apparently, according to Laura Bricker, the most notorious wrongful conviction case in Spain since 1910. Yeah. Is that right? 1910. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary? Um, I'm going to give this like a mild thumbs up because there's like really, I mean, it, it's an hour and a half. It's not meant to be this super deep investigative dive into this case. So for me, what I liked about this is it's a crime in another country that I haven't heard of. It's another country that I didn't really know a lot about the criminal justice system. And there was some definite rage walking material in that we have a lesbian wrongfully convicted simply because she's a lesbian. What the, you know, bleep, bleep, bleep. So, you You know, with the actual fuck, Laura, we curse in this podcast. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I should hold it in. I don't know. Um, So, you know, it's not like my favorite thing, but it's, it's not meant to be like this huge investigative series. It's meant to be like a quick overview of a case in another country. And I think that on that level, it succeeded. I I would have liked to see it maybe told in a different way to make it a little bit more suspenseful. But overall, I thought it was pretty interesting. Toby Ball, what do you think? So in basketball and maybe in other sports, there's this concept of like what a, a replacement level player. And that is like an absolutely average player. And so it's like, what would you do if you replace this guy with an absolutely average guy? Like, would your team be worse or better or whatever? And this kind of strikes me as a replacement level crime documentary. It seems very average. I mean, there's something wrong with it. You know, it's competently done. You know, the story's kind of interesting, but it's not, it doesn't seem very inspired to me. And I think like just a little bit more I've learned just talking to you guys and the little bit of research that people have done, I guess, makes it seem like there probably could have been more done for this. So, you know, it's like the mildest of thumbs up. Like if there's literally nothing else that you want to watch, like this is fine. But if you got something else that you have any interest in watching at all, maybe watch that first. Kevin Flynn. Well, I agree with everything you say. The only thing different for me is that I'm going to go thumb sideways. I'm just going to embrace it. It's it's fine. It works well. I think that I would have improved it if they'd taken my advice and gone with that second murder first. <laughs> yep. It just occurred to me, like, wow, that would have made a whole difference. Let's go back in time. Put Let's you in go, the editing room. I go back in time. Put me in the editing room. It's good. You know, it's. I, I think that, you know, there's a really great case here about, like, how does... How do you have one person in jail when and not, you know, say the other one's been exonerated? Yeah. Uh, uh, there's that. But it's, yeah, it's a perfectly serviceable true crime documentary. It's only in an hour and a half. So if it's raining, go ahead and watch it. But if you miss it, you haven't really missed anything. So sideways. Yeah, I'm going thumbs up because the story was very interesting. And I have so many questions about different ways it could have been done where I'm like, all right, there was enough here to make me want more of this and more of that and more of this. I actually thought that like the basic story is interesting. It's something I don't know about. It's, it's well made. Like it's not poorly made just because it's not the way I would have made it. Doesn't mean it's like poorly made. Uh, I think if you're interested in a case that you have never heard a lot about, or you heard a little bit about and want to know more about. And if you like me just enjoy things that were not made in America for Americans, Uh, I really do think you should check out Murder by the Coast. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of of the week. week. It's time for a frank conversation, you wieners. (laughs) Heinz Ketchup Canada has had enough. They want to know why there are 10 hot dogs in a pack, but only eight buns in a package. This is a question the people have wanted answered for years and have been waiting for a champion to their cause. Heinz has started an online petition asking the forces of Big Bun and Big Wiener to come together in a hot dog pact and end this uncivil war. Big Wiener. Yes. The answer to the question of why is complicated, but the rolls are usually baked in pans that accommodate four buns. And since they're stuffed like sausages, separated and then packaged, it would seem Big Wiener would have the most flexibility. But what kind of concessions would you expect from Big Wiener? 
A flexible wiener. About 1,400 people have signed the change.org petition to match wiener count with bun count. We agree with a supporter who wrote that eating those last two hot dogs and sandwich bread is, quote, soul-crushing. So, panel, here's my question. Should there be more buns per package or fewer hot dogs per package to bring balance to the world. Please be prepared to defend your position. Laura Bricker, what do you think? So I am in full support of more buns than hot dogs. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there is another little hidden food treat that has come out of pandemic times that I have developed a real love for, and it is called beans on toast. So when you have some hot dog buns left over and you grill them up with some butter and you put your baked beans in, it's really quite delicious. You don't even need the hot dog. I mean, put the the beans beans, in the hot dog bun? Listen, I eat my beans with eggs almost every morning. I'm a fucking baked bean addict. I'm with you. Yes. So that's my position. Toby Ball, what do you think? Should buns or hot dogs concede in this hot dog slash bun war? Defend your position. I just want to clarify that Lars position is I want to continue it being unequal, but just in the other direction. Yes. 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 That's it. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oppression. Uh, <laughs> so she wants 12 buns and 10 hot dogs, right? 12 oh, buns and eight hot know. dogs because I want four yes. beans on toast. Okay, so Toby, what do you think? What's your position on the 10 hot dog slash eight buns war? I don't really like hot dogs. Oh my God. This is why we've only become friends recently, Toby. So honestly. it's like, I, how many bratwurst do you usually get? Do you Jesus, get like Toby. eight you get brats? Like six, maybe. You get like six brats? So you I think this package? is the, this like, this, I mean, I think that works everything out because then the buns don't have to do anything. If you just get brats, you get six brats with buns. You get two for your, your uh, beans, beans and whatever it is. Kevin Flynn. Weak tea. Who Weak needs to tea. step up, hot dog or bun? Big hot dog or big bun? Big wiener has mm. to step up because, look, the pans are only so big. And they're making those four buns. So it's going to be four, eight, 12. Now, they could make the hot dog pack 12 hot dogs. And then you could have larger buns. And then you'd only get eight and so right. So it just seems like the obvious thing is to to package the hot dogs in packages of eight to match the buns. And I would tell you, I believe, maybe it's Oscar Mayer. Somebody has done that. Somebody is doing eight in a package now instead yeah. of ten. Yeah, you're, you mean Americans have innovated before the Canadians caught on? All yeah. of what's you going are on? wrong. Suck it, Pierre. Listen, you're all wrong. Yeah. And here is my, you said in your crime of the week thing, be prepared to make a strong case. Yeah, I just did. If you care about hot dogs enough to care about this, as I do, Kevin, as you know, hot dogs are one of my top five favorite foods. How many days a week do I ask you to make me a hot dog on the grill for lunch? Several. What's up? At least more than one. Yeah. So here's what I do. I buy four packages of hot dogs and five packages of buns, and then it is fucking perfect. What is your problem, you stupid people? So your your solution you your solution to end this war is to not is to fight more. Yes, let's fight even no, more no, no, to no. even it out. To if buy you care more. enough, buy if, more. If you care enough. There is nothing wrong with buying your four packages of hot dogs and eight packages of buns. And Kevin, Rebecca, the people want a you champion. Will attest, you will attest that what I do is I break up those hot dog packages and put them in packages of 10 in the freezer. Do you really? Who the fuck wants to do this? Oh, my God. That's a lot of meat byproducts. I care yeah. a lot about getting as many nitrites <laughs> into my body as I possibly right. can. And then the buns turn blue. Oh, and come no, on. Awesome. Jesus Christ. Listen, this is very so, important to me. Just get the same number. I this have, is, the Canadians are right. You need enough. The madness must stop. You need enough granny mustard, enough relish. The madness must stop. You need enough banana Eight hot dogs, eight buns. That's it. And you need enough. By the way, you never say... Why doesn't the salad packs match up with your Paul Newman's dressing? Because I don't eat salad. Stop discriminating against big hot dog. The, All last, right. th- the last time I had a hot dog, actually, I think was in Canada. What? And uh, my brother-in-law and I were uh, going to a Metallica concert. Of course and, you were. And we're walking and we hadn't eaten anything. And the Canadians are geniuses. So it was this pretty long walk from the uh, subway station to where the where the concert actually was. Hey. Mm-hmm. But like every... 
hundred yards, there was somebody selling Molsons, mm. and so oh, you yeah. could get a Molsons. And by the time you, oh, you slugged it down, there's another guy selling you Molsons, and then there were people selling you hot dogs. So I bought two hot dogs and had a Molson <laughs> tall boy, and then it started pouring, and the bun just melted Ew. off uh. the hot dog. So I was just. Ended up That's holding gross, Toby. two wet hot dogs. And those are the last hot dogs I've eaten. Toby, um, when you come to visit us at our vacation house in a couple weeks, we're going to grill you up some fucking hot dogs. And you're going to understand You're going to eat them, Toby. You, you were just at our house. I was dogs. making hot dogs. You're gonna, I know, but those I were, those were I didn't choose those hot dogs. Those were not the ones that I like. I, I like the Hebrew the national thing. ones. Yeah. Hebrew national all beef or Nathan's all beef. Mm-hmm. All beef, crispy skin. Jesus Christ. I like it's the best burned. food in the world. Yes, me too. Mm-hmm. Syracuse Listen. has got some like fancy hot dog, but I just, there's nothing I don't know. wrong with loving I, hot dogs, popsicles, and triscuits are basically my food pyramid. Let's mm. just break it down. All right, blue slab of mayonnaise on the bun, grill it like no, that. It makes warm. it nice and yellow. It's perfect. Mayonnaise and hot dog? No, 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 on the outside, like you know, oh. you would put you, butter on. You, you put butter mayonnaise? it, butter it with a thin slice of mayonnaise. You do that with your grilled cheese too. And the heat will, yeah, you won't, Anything, it doesn't taste like mayonnaise. Anytime just, you want to toast any kind of bread for any kind of sandwich, but mayonnaise on the outside, trust me, it changes your life. All right, huh. yeah. Lara Bricker, oh we gosh. need to end the... Oh, listen, Toby. Listen, don't be Toby's judgy. Toby's been put out in so many ways. In Lara this Bricker, <laughs> we have to end the show right now. Yes, Toby Bricker eats homemade granola. By the way, I make homemade granola too, but I also like mayonnaise on the outside of my fucking bread. Do we have a cat of the week this week, Lara Bricker? We have a Fiat Spider as cat of the week. We have a car as the cat of the week? Yes. This comes to us from Jennifer, and I I just love this. So Jennifer says, if you're looking for an awesome convertible, Rebecca, or any of you, this one is, in my opinion, it is sporty, has great lines, and people stop and ask me about it all the time. I've never had a convertible before, but I love it so much. And let me warn you, though, it is a bit of a gateway drug for adventure. Because a year after getting it, my husband convinced me to semi-retire and move to Las Vegas. And I'm in my 40s. P.S. If not the spider, then maybe our guinea pigs can be cat of the week. Molly, Betty, and Olivia. Um, Nice. It's a nice car. It looks very, it's like a nice white car. It's got kind of like a maroon brown roof. And it looks very zoomy. So a thing that our listener may not have known Mm -hmm. is that on my cars.com perpetual search is... All of the convertibles that come in stick shift. Yeah. And the Fiat is one of three. So, yes, the Fiat Spider is already on my list. Thank you for making a cat of the week. Oh. And Kevin, I can't wait to bring one home and show what it to you. What are your other two? Is it the Mazda Miata? We'll talk about it later. Oh, Laura, okay. Kevin can't take it. Oh, All right, Kevin. Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you to submit their uh, dogs, cats, uh, le- emus, llamas, or in fact cars to be cat of the week. Of course, they can email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. But if they want to do it on Twitter, how can they find you there? Uh, they can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you to show you solidarity for your hate of hot dogs or disparage you for your hate of hot dogs. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and support you for your mayonnaise on the outside of bread cooking technique, how can they find you on Twitter? I swear by it. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. You know I'm what? at Kevin P. Flynn. You swear by it like Anthony Bourdain sweared by it. It's correct. You didn't know anything. It is a correct cooking technique. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular Facebook page, but the group is where it's at. Support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the exceptionally handsome cross-country traveling adventurer Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we would rather drink hot dog water than eat a frankfurter on Wonder Bread. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. No, no, what's the one that's like the... 
It's crackling oat bran. It's like the square things that are yeah. super hard that taste we, like oats. We don't have that, though. Oh, I thought I bought some oh. No, you did not. I would have oh, remembered. Love me the crackling oat Can bran. Can we just talk about the fact that crackling oat bran sounds like it's going to like give you like solid poops <laughs> and be like amazing, but it's just cookies in a box? It's bran. Yeah. It's oats. It's oatmeal cookies that. in a box. Oatmeal cookies in a box. Living crime media. media.